Well, thank you, worship team. Boy, I mentioned this in the first service, but uh, you are blessed to have a team like that. I love that first song. Kind of had a Johnny Cash vibe to it, and I'm a real fan. Let me just mention just very briefly about this um, video you just saw. Casa Hogar is a children's home, as mentioned, Sukwakapeki in western, northwestern Honduras. We have three missionaries, Fellowship International missionaries. Melody was a social worker in Quebec who went for a short-term missions trip to there and has stayed for over a decade. And then has married a Honduran young man, great man. And we also have a couple who are early retirees from the military, from the Canadian military, who now go down, spend about six months of the year with these kids and just have fallen in love with them. So it's well cared for. And you can give through this latest appeal between now and Easter, and I hope you will. I hope you'll go online and give generously because we need your help to reach that 150000 But a second way in which you can give is through a child sponsorship program, which I, met, I mentioned earlier. There's some information at the table amongst other literature that I encourage you to pick up, at least pick up and find out about it. Similar to a Compassion or World Vision, you can come alongside of a project, five projects in three different countries with Fellowship International missionaries who are working and leading these, so we're, we're making sure they're managed well. But we're, we're praying for 1,100 sponsors like yourselves, and we're up to 462. You can choose whichever uh, country you want to be involved in, and it's a similar situation with a monthly sponsorship. Uh, I, uh, my wife and I sponsor Gabrielle in Casahoga in Honduras. I'm going there in March and looking forward to seeing Gabrielle again. I was there a few years ago, and Gabrielle helped me. I'm an artist, so I, I did a huge mural in, in amongst the boys' room, and Gabrielle was my little my little assistant for the full week, and he became my, my guy. Uh, we played soccer together, and now we get to sponsor him. So I hope you'll give that some prayerful consideration. Whoever you are, get involved. Get involved in one of these projects, please. So let's just ask the Lord to bless our time as we enter into an opportunity to learn from his word. And uh, let's pray to that end. Father, again, we bow our heads, but we bow our hearts. We need to hear your spirit and why I may do my feeble effort in trying to explain this passage, it's your spirit that will speak to the hearts of your children, Father. And so help us to hear that still small voice this morning, that we will be obedient to what we hear you speak to us, for your glory, but our great benefit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me start by uh, stating something that you may not agree with. Maybe. But I hope in the next 30 minutes, through use of God's word, I'll be able to persuade you that this is in fact the case. It's this. If you are a follower of Christ, I mean, you have given your life, committed your life, and you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, Christian, blood-bought, born again. If you are a follower of Christ, every day when you get out of bed, you get to choose. You get to choose this. Every one of us as believers, as Christians, we get to choose every day how much God chooses to bless us. Let me say that again. As believers in Jesus Christ, we get up every day and we get to choose that day how much God chooses to bless us that day. Now, the problem is that over the decades, these uh, health and wealth gospel preachers have ruined that for us. Uh, I get to travel and visiting our missionaries in the 19 countries that we're in, and I see this health and wealth gospel everywhere. 
It's, it's dangerous what's happening elsewhere and around the world. And it's ruined us with this, this sort of faith, you know, and, and, and these faith gospel, health and wealth gospels are saying, everybody, everybody should have a pink Cadillac in their driveway. It's your lack of faith. And they've ruined it. But it does not negate the truth that what is taught in the New Testament related to what I call the principle of sowing and reaping. We can sow, like a, like a, you know, a farmer sows seed into the field, and he, he sows lots of seed, he should expect a great harvest. If he show, sows little seed, he should expect a very small harvest. This sowing and reaping principle is found throughout the Scriptures. Throughout the New Testament, it, we're taught that if we sow much, we should expect much. And there is this co-relationship between my capacity to believe and God's desire to bless. Jesus himself said it. Matthew 9, verse 29, according to your faith, it will be done to you. Does it get clearer? According to my faith, it will be done to me. Jesus says there is this relationship between your capacity to believe me at my word, truly believe it, by faith, and I'm going to bless you. For believing. I'm going to bless you big time because you get to choose that every day. Jesus would go on to say in Mark chapter 9, verse 23 anything, anything, anything is possible if, you, if a person believes. Anything, big, little, anything is possible if a person believes. There is this marvelous relationship between my ability and capacity to believe Jesus at his word. I go to his word, and his word says, I will protect you. I go to his word, and I, I will provide for you. I go to his word, and he says, I will guide you. Do I believe that? My capacity to believe that on a daily basis correlates to God's blessing to follow. I get to choose every day how much blessing God chooses for my life. And it's not about some arrogant or prideful stance with God. Like, you owe me. No, 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 no. It's out of gratitude. We believe him at his word. I get to choose that every day. And for many Christians, especially in North America, it's really easy to be a Christian. It's becoming more difficult. As we look at the uh, countercultural view of you know, Orthodox Christianity in the workplace and in the, in, the, in the marketplace nowadays. But it's pretty easy. And we can get pretty comfortable. And we don't exercise faith as way we could or should. We don't believe God. We sort of hear these stories of what people are doing and go, holy smokes, I couldn't do that. Yeah, you could if you chose to do it. Really stepped out. Stepped out and exercised faith and really believed God. Of course we could. The blessing follows. The blessing follows. And what you discover is that things that you doubted God for 10 years ago, five years ago, you don't anymore because you've made incremental steps of stepping out and believing God that he is going to come through. He said it in his word. I believe it. And all of a sudden, you don't doubt on those things anymore. And the prudent, the wise believer in Jesus starts to work on this, exercising faith regularly, stretching themselves because it's wise, because there is stuff coming. Maybe not this week. Maybe not in the next five years, but there's stuff coming that will shake you to your core. And many believers walk away 
Paul speaks of them. He names some of those people in Scripture. I've been noticing them as I've been going through the last part of the Bible, my devotions, all the names of the people who walked away. Their faith was shattered because they didn't have a strong faith to begin with. Exercising our faith. And as I've said in the title, the ease of great faith. We believe in a great God. Shouldn't it be easy to believe? The ease of great faith. You know, when my son was young, he's 30 years old now, but when he was like five years old, he was just full of vinegar. He had just way too much energy. And sometimes I'd just say, Alec, just run around the house four times, then come back in. Just to get the bugs out of him. He was just active and connected. And I was trying to explain to him what it means to live by faith. I mean, that's a concept that's tough for adults to get. How do you teach walking by faith to children? And I said, it's a poor analogy, but this is what all I had as a young father at the time. I said, faith, Alec, Alec, faith is like a muscle. And you want to be, you want to grow up as a big, strong man like your daddy. I mean, what did he know? I'm no great specimen, but he didn't know that. But if you want to grow up like a big, strong you know, dad, like your dad, then you're going to have to exercise your muscles. You've got to climb the trees and run around and chase our dog. <coughs> And as you exercise your muscles, your, your muscles, you're going to become stronger. It, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but incrementally it will happen month after month, year after year. And my son became a guy who's so good in sports. He's an amazing soccer player. He was lifting weights in university. He was building himself up. And, I mean, he loves to lift dumbbells. Me, I like to lift donuts. So I'm into donuts. He's into dumbbells. Very different. But he, he's, he's into building that stuff up. And he did. And muscles need to be exercise if they become stronger. The same is true of faith. You can live a pretty comfortable Christian life in Canada and not really exercise faith a whole lot. Is that true? Am I being too harsh? I think in our honest moments we'd agree. You know, when did you, when was the last time you spent time with the Lord in prayer asking him for something that was really beyond your capacity make it happen? That's exercise in faith. That's really trusting God. That takes time, but your muscles get stronger. Well, the story I want to tell about that relates to this is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. Dr. Luke wrote this wonderful story about one of the most unlikely characters that Jesus uses as a model of faith for his children. We would never would have, I never would have picked this guy, but <laughs> Jesus did. So turn with me to Luke chapter 7 got your Bible or your smartphone, I want to read verses 1 to 10 before we start and break down each of these verses over the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 7, Dr. Luke shares this story. When Jesus had finished saying all this, he went back to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a capital city in this region of northern Israel. It's on the coast on the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is just big talk for a lake. They do that in the Holy Land. They make everything big. It's really like 14 miles by 7 miles. It's a lake. But it's an important city. It, it is the hub of this entire region. All roads lead to Capernaum you know, for, for merchandise, for education, for religious life, for entertainment. You go to Capernaum. So it, he's in Capernaum. Jesus is coming into Capernaum. Now the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. 
When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish leaders to ask him to come and heal his slave. The fact that Jewish leaders would even go bother because Roman officers asked them is, there's a, there's a story behind the story, which we'll, we'll address. Verse 4. So they earnestly begged Jesus to come with them and help the man. If anyone deserves your help, it's he, they said, for he loves the Jews. A Roman officer loves the Jews? Whew. Wow. Backstory. Big time. And even built a synagogue for, I mean, you built a 22 million thing. Imagine the mayor of Hamilton saying, hey, pastor, here's 22 million bucks. Go build yourself a building. That's what's going on here. So Jesus went with him. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I'm not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. I mean, in the same story told by Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, 5 to 13, this point is really accentuated. This guy feels like, Jesus, don't even come. I'm not worthy to have you in my presence. This is a powerful Roman soldier speaking to a young 30-something-year-old 30, 30 rabbi. In Jewish culture that day, you weren't even a really a mature man until you were 40. He's a nobody. And the Roman officer is a somebody. But he shows such, such deference to this young rabbi. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. That's amazing. Just say the word from where you are. You don't need to be here. You could be in Dallas and just say the word and I know my slave will be, be healed. I know because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need, you, uh, need to say go and they go or I say come and they come. And if I say to my slave, do this or that, they do it because if they don't, there are consequences. Verse 9. This is an amazing verse. When Jesus heard this, he was, what's the word? Amazed. Other other translations like the ESV use the word marvel. He marveled over this man. He was amazed by it. Turning to the crowd, Jesus said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all the land of Israel. All the land of Israel? I have not seen this kind of faith. And all, you mean the apostles? Yeah, I haven't seen faith like this amongst the apostles. Your mother, Mary? I, yeah. In all the land of Israel. Is this hyperbole on Jesus' part? I don't know. But he's trying to make a point. I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And it's a Roman Gentile officer, a military man. I, would, I just don't get it. But Jesus says it here. And verse 10, And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. You know, it's a wonderful story of healing and miracle. But if that's the point you get from this story, you miss the point. The point is about faith. This is what Jesus is trying to say. It, this, is a, this is a story not about a miracle. This is a story about exercising faith, believing Jesus at his word. Now, this Roman officer in the King James Version and the NIV, they refer to him as a centurion, a Roman centurion, which I'm sure is a term you're familiar with if you watched any of those old movies in the 50s, you know, the uh, Victor Mature and Charlton Heston and Rex Harrison and Richard Burton and all those Roman movies. I mean, these centurions were in incredibly important individuals to the Roman army. In fact, historians refer to him as the backbone of the Roman army. And every commander knew the strength of his centurion cohort before going into the battle because it's based on that strength that he knew whether he would be winning or losing that day. 
These were brave men. They'd likely many of them been in the army for at least 20 years before they're brought to that rank of over 100 to 140 enlisted men who would, who would go into battle with their commander, Centurion, and, and give up their lives for him. They were brave and honorable. Many times they became wealthy, receiving the booty from all these fights and battles. And they were often viewed as ruthless. They were smart tacticians. The commander knew that in in the clinch, these centurions would take their 100, 140 men and see an, an opening and take them. They were strategically in the field and saw shortcomings and they would pounce on it. These were individuals who were highly valued in Roman society and the Roman army. The backbone, the backbone of the Roman army. And so while we know a lot about centurions, Dr. Luke wants to tell us a little bit about this centurion in the first verses of Luke chapter 7. The first thing we learn about this centurion in Luke chapter 7, verse 5, we can move the slide, because I don't remember the point. Thank you. He was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to sacrifice. What, what was going on here? Well, in verse 5, this centurion sends out some Jewish leaders from the synagogue in Capernaum to go and sort of butter up Jesus, to bring Jesus to his home to, in a miracle to heal his slave. And these Jewish leaders are basically coming to Jesus before he enters into the city. He's saying, this is a good Roman, Jesus. There's not many of them in our country. They had come in. They had conquered our land. They were our overlords. The Jews couldn't stand the, the, uh, the Romans. I mean, one of Jesus' apostles was a zealot. He was part of that sort of terrorist undersurging against the Romans. I mean, they were not pleasant. And they were difficult to govern. The Romans didn't know politician from Rome wanted to go to Judea. These people are so difficult to govern. There is no love loss between them. But these Jewish leaders of the synagogue are saying to Jesus, this is a good Roman. He's a good one. I mean, he has, he has sacrificed from his own wallet, his own purse. He has given us enough money to build a new synagogue. Can you imagine that, Jesus? This is a good one. Would you come with us? He wants to meet you and do something for his, his dear slave. So he's willing to sacrifice. I mean, this is a picture here of the synagogue from the 3rd century A.D. I, I visited there a number of years ago with the then Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He was on a state trip there. He took 200 Jewish Canadians, but he also brought about a dozen Christian leaders with him so he could go visit the Christian sites. Stephen Harper was a part of an alliance church, a Christian alliance, missionary alliance church, and wanted to see the sites with some Christian leaders. And I don't know why I got picked, but I got to go there. And I went to Capernaum with, uh, with uh, um, Prime Minister Harper at the time. I said, I, I've been there before. I said, I want to show you something. And we went to the far corner of this little, uh, w uh, this little floor here. And, I, and then there's this little floor here that has been dug down three, four feet. And at the bottom, it's a terrible picture I took there. But at the bottom, there's a mosaic floor like a little tiled mosaic floor there. And I said to the prime minister, this floor is the floor of the first century synagogue. This is the floor that our savior Jesus walked across 300 years before this, this second synagogue was built. Now, I'm not a suspicious, superstitious guy, but I, it is kind of cool to think that Jesus actually walked on this floor. A floor that a Roman soldier had given $22 million to, to build. They were floored by that as Jews. 
Second thing Dr. Luke tells us about this guy, in verse 2 and verse 3, that he was merciful. Merciful. How was he merciful? Well, this is a story of a Roman soldier, a Roman officer, asking a miracle worker named Jesus to come and heal his slave. To show mercy to his slave. What's extraordinary about that is that Roman officers are not known for showing any kind of compassion to slaves. And there are millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. But they're treated as chattel. They're treated as property. And if they die or get sick or they're not useful anymore, you get rid of them. And you send your managing slave, the manager of the family, to go to the Agora, the marketplace, on Saturday morning and buy another one. That's how it normally worked, as horrible as that was. He's not like that. He shows compassion to a slave and asks the miracle worker to come and heal him. It just shows something about this Roman officer that is so unusual because centurions are not known for compassion and mercy. They're known for ruthlessness and leadership and courage. He's got something going on that's not normal for a Roman uh, centurion. The third thing Dr. Luke talks about in verse 6 is he was humble. He was humble. What's going on there? I can't tell you this for certain, but there's every reason to believe that this centurion was the main government leader of the region, the governor. And what would typically happen is that the Roman army would go out and do what the Roman army does. They would go and conquer. They conquer. And then they establish Roman law and Roman culture on those who have been conquered. The reality was that the political apparatus back in Rome took their time about catching up with the Roman army's escapades. They didn't like leaving Rome. They enjoyed Rome and the Roman life and the, 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 the baths and the amphitheaters. I mean, those old 1950 movies, uh, uh, Hollywood movies about Roman life was them sitting in a chaise lounge with a, you know, a, a slave waving this ostrich feather fan and another slave dropping grapes into their mouth. Why would you want to leave that and go to this hot, desperate, arid country with a group of people who are so difficult to govern? They didn't. And so what happened oftentimes is the political apparatus was slow in arriving where the army had conquered and commanders would have to place some of their choices commanders in governing positions. Uh, you're a centurion, you lead these 140 men, well then you can lead this region, you're now the governor. And there's every reason to believe that this centurion is now the governor of this area. He has a large staff and a large cohort of soldiers who are around him taking care of an entire region with, with many slaves in his household. He is the most powerful man politically in every respect in that entire region in Capernaum. He's a man you don't mess with. You don't want to get on his wrong side because he, he has power over life and death. The most powerful man in the entire region shows deference to a young 30-year-old rabbi. Makes no sense to me. Made no sense to the Jewish leaders. That's why they were profoundly saying he's, he's a different kind of Roman leader. He had heard enough about Jesus that something was happening or had happened in his life related to Jesus not just being a rabbi, but possibly the Messiah, the Savior. It's evident that that's going on in this man's life. And he shows humility, not the first character trait you think of a Roman centurion. He shows humility to this Jewish rabbi 
This young Jewish rabbi who's not even viewed as a proper man until he's about 40. And he doesn't have a, a mega church in, back in Jerusalem with a TV ministry. Jesus got none of that. He's just this guy who walks around telling about the kingdom of God. He shows humility. This, this picture I got of me is I was in... Uh, I was in Drumheller, Alberta, and I went to see the big, huge passion play they do on the side, carved out of the side of one of their mountains in Drumheller. And, you know, three, 4,000 people can sit and see this two-hour passion play with 200 actors. And the actor who was playing the centurion, when I came down to visit him, I said, hey, I'm a preacher. And he stayed in character. It was hilarious. He pulled out, his sca- out of his scab the throat, and he went to me to, to, my, to cut my neck. He's really, um, he's really actually a real estate agent. His name is Randy from Calgary, but he, he loved playing this, this, this centurion. What do we learn? We learn that he's willing to sacrifice, he's merciful, he's humble, but I find it very telling and interesting that Jesus doesn't reference any of this as the things that astound him. No, no. In verses 7, 8, and 9, take a look. He doesn't reference any of these things as being impressive. I mean, we find these kind of things impressive. I mean, the things that we find impressive in our society are vastly different than the kingdom of God. I mean, we're a society that will pay a guy who can slap a puck 100 miles an hour. We pay him millions of dollars. A person who works in a child care center, minimum wage. What's messed up about that? That's how messed up our That's what we're impressed with. We're impressed with all the wrong things. Now, I'm not trying to put down hockey players, please. You know, for all the hockey players who work, uh, play for the NHL in the audience, I don't want to put that down. But Jesus is not impressed with a lot of things we get impressed with in our society. Prestige, influence, generosity, skill set, talent. These are things, whoa, education, a PhD, whoa. You know what Jesus is impressed with? In verses 7, 8, 9, the man's faith. The man's faith is what impresses Jesus. I think Jesus really loves to see when his children exercise extraordinary faith. I think he gets all jazzed up about it. And he goes, whoa, I'm amazed. Now, I love the way this centurion explains faith. I read this story 39 years ago as a brand new Christian, and it helped me to understand what faith is. It was so simple. There is some relationship between authority and faith. This is his, one of the points of his uncommon faith. In verse 7 and 8, he says, I, he, he explains faith like this. He says, I'm a man under authority, and I'm a man who has authority. And I understand when those above me say go or say, say come, as a military man, I do it because I know they're above me. Their very words have authority on my life. And there are those under me, you know, second lieutenants, sergeants, corporals, privates. And when I say go or I say come or I say to my, my slave this, go here or go that, they do it because they don't, they, they, they do it because they know there are consequences if they don't. But they, they know I have authority and my very word has authority. And so Jesus is saying, yes. You understand it. So that when my word says this or says that, and my word says go, go into all lands and preach the gospel, when the word says come, come unto me and abide with me, go, come, do this, know that I will provide for you, know that I will protect you, know that I will guide you, do you trust me in my word? 
Do you? It's so easy to say yes, but do your actions follow up? Because his word has authority over my life. And my capacity to believe him at his word is an indication of just how strong my faith really is. Now, does Jesus have that authority? Well, the Bible says very clearly he does. Paul, the Apostle Paul's testimony on Jesus found for us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. God has put all things under the authority of Christ for the benefit of the church. It's for my great benefit that I understand Jesus has that authority over everything in my life, and I can trust him and believe him and place my faith in this stuff that's going to come through for me. John's testimony on this very topic, John chapter 3, verse 35, God loves, the Father loves the Son and has placed all authority on him. Jesus, his own testimony on this very topic, Matthew 28, verse 18, I have been given all authority over everything, Jesus says, in heaven and earth. So yeah, he has the authority. He has the authority. And so do I place my faith do I exercise my faith like I really believe when he says something? His words have that authority. The second thing that we learn about this man that was uncommon is that his faith, Jesus' reaction to his faith was one of amazement. Verse, verse 9 is an extraordinary verse. Jesus listens to this man say that, and he goes, oh my goodness, I have not seen this kind of faith anywhere else in Israel. It's an extraordinary statement when you think about it. Nowhere else, Jesus? Nowhere. You mean it took a Roman Gentile military man for you to be made? Yes. Wouldn't have been my choice in the model for the next 2,000 years we're going to read about. But Jesus said, hey, this kind of faith can be found amongst anybody. Anybody who wants to exercise. I'm amazed by this kind of faith. Now, <laughs> I took a study of the New Testament on this because I said, where do we see Jesus getting amazed by anybody? That's an interesting concept. You know, wouldn't you be interested to know what amazed Jesus? Uh, the other translations use the word marvel. So I looked up every time I saw the word amazed or marveled. And what I discovered was more the vast preponderance of those occasions, Jesus is amazed by our unbelief, not amazed by our belief. You, you can start in Matthew 6, 6 and just go from there. He's constantly amazed by, what? What? You can't trust me? I mean, you believe I created the whole universe? Yeah, yeah, I do, I do, I do. You believe I have the ability to provide and protect? Yeah, 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 I do, I do. And you can't trust me for your salary for the next month? I, I can't believe this. I'm amazed. And we can live like that or we can choose not to. Because we get to choose every day how much we believe and venture God's amazement. We get to choose that every single day. There's a wonderful story in Mark chapter 4. I mean, Jesus, Mark chapter 1 and 2, you get exhausted some days, read Mark chapter 1. Look at a day in the life of Jesus. That's what Mark 1 is talking about, Mark 1 and 2. He's exhausted. In Mark chapter 4, he's trying to get away from the crowds from a very exhausting day. And he's in his boat, and he's traveling across the Sea of Galilee to get away from the crowds, but there are crowds on the other side waiting for him. And, and what happens? A great storm comes in. And even amongst these 
these disciples, these apostles who are, many of them are seasoned fishermen, they're caught unawares. Because the Mediterranean Sea can throw these storms into Israel, and then the Sea of Galilee is basically this lake of 14 miles by semi, tall, tall mountains on either side. And when I was on the sea several years back, they said these, 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 these mountains almost act as a, a sucking motion. They're like a funnel. And they just suck these storms in from the Mediterranean right into this little, little lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And even seasoned fishermen can be out in the lake and see a blue sky and they can be caught unaware. And then a huge storm comes just like a vortex comes in and catches them unaware. And this is what's going on. And Jesus is exhausted and he's in the back of the boat and he's sleeping and they're bailing. Verse 38 says, we're going to drown. We're going to drown. I mean, these brave fishermen, we're going to drown. And, and say, go wake up, Jesus. He'll do so. I don't know. I'm not going to wake up. He's exhausted. Are you gonna, I'm not going to wake up. You're, you're, you're going to wake him up? I'm not going to wake him up. And finally, someone bravely goes and shakes Jesus and says, Jesus, we're in a storm. Please wake up. You ever feel like that? Something really crummy in your life and you think, man, is Jesus asleep? Does he even know what I'm going through? Jesus wakes up and he yawns and he stretches and he slowly gets up in the midst of the storm and he looks at them and he says in verse 40, why are you afraid? Do you still not believe me? Ouch, take the dagger out of my back, Dwayne. And that's how they must have felt. Oh, yeah, 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 our faith. Wow, he will protect, yeah, yeah. I mean, it can happen. These storms happen, and we sometimes falter. I get it. I've done it many times. But Jesus is saying, you don't have to, because you see, the opposite of faith is not doubt. Believe. And blessing with, oh, it's not doubt. I have come to believe the opposite of the same coin. The opposite of faith is actually fear. It's fear. Fear is a killer. Fear kills faith. It's a serial killer. Fear just pushes faith off to the sidelines. And doubt may be one of several symptomatic things that can happen. We got to get over the fear. We don't have to live with fear when we know a God who loves us and is universally all-powerful to take care of us. There didn't need to be fear. Overcome that fear is what the scriptures tell us. So I want to end with just two, two little reflections as we close off this morning. The first reflection is this. Great faith is not always characteristic of great people. Great faith is not always characteristic. I mean, oftentimes we think the people of great faith are the Billy Grahams of the church, the Martin Luthers of the church. These are the great people of faith. And what I discovered in 30 years of pastoral ministry, 30 years is that I discovered in my churches there were plenty of people who were leaders in their church who were people of faith, but I found many, many quiet behind-the-scenes people who were the people of great faith. And as a, a young pastor and then an older pastor, what I had discovered, because I always led the prayer ministry in every church as I pastored, I would gather these people to become the prayer team for the church. And they cared for all the different prayer ministries in their church because I needed to surround myself with these people of great faith. These people who just, just got it because so much of this is not taught. It's better caught. Hang out with people of faith. If you haven't got friends or people of faith, find them. Find them. Hang out with them so much we can learn from people of great faith 
about trusting God for great things in our lives, for trusting God for his provision and protection. You know, I, I, I remember several years ago, I was sitting around my, uh, on a Tuesday morning, a staff meeting with my staff, and we, we normally started with, how'd the weekend go? What did you do? Just small talk. And my children's director, Catherine, had said, we did something different on Saturday. I brought my two kids across. Uh, it was Sarnia. I pastored at Temple Baptist Sarnia. And we were a border town in Port Huron, Michigan. was just over the, over the, the bridge. And she said, I took the kids over the bridge into Port Huron. And we went to a, a, a century-old uh, theater that had been completely refurbished with all that beautiful, dark, polished wood that no one can build with anymore because it's so expensive. But they had refurbished and made these things beautiful with chandeliers and, and brass chandeliers and brass this and brass that and red velvet chairs, you know, 100-year-old chairs that, you know, back in the day you can hardly sit in them anymore because people were so much smaller than they are now in the 21st century. You get, you, know, you get into those little red velvet, with red velvet curtains, you know, where the theater would be. And, and she said, I took, I took them, and, and David was her five-year-old. David had never been to a theater, and on Saturday morning, they opened it up for families to come see cartoons. Great idea. She took uh, David and his sister in there, and he just went in and saw all that wood and all that brass and chandeliers and the red velvet. And he went, wow. He thought he'd come into a temple. Never seen anything like this. He walked into the auditorium and sat in the middle of the auditorium waiting for the cartoons to show up. The place was packed with kids crawling over their chairs, waiting. And then the lights went down, and the, the clicking of that film started. And you know what they do. The first 15, 20 minutes, they get you there, and then they, what do they, they, they give you advertisement after advertisement. They got you. Where are you going to go? you got to listen. And so the first thing Catherine was saying was the first advertisement was an advertisement for Pepsi-Cola. And this great big, big, huge glass comes into scene and is clumped down and it's, it's condensation and sweating is coming down and, and it's got Pepsi-Cola written on the glass and then a bottle of Pepsi-Cola comes into scene and this is like two stories high on the screen and it starts to fill up the glass with Pepsi. And it's filling up and the popping and the fizzing and the foam goes over top of the edge and, you know, I want to drink right now. This stuff works. It works. And then what they do, they put f these words right across the screen. Oh, they're so crafty. What do you want? I want a drink. Little David, he doesn't understand marketing. Didn't get that in kindergarten. He doesn't understand marketing. He doesn't understand how they try to do this. He's not getting up for a Pepsi. He just thinks it's a funny thing. But he does understand that mommy and daddy have taught him it's polite to answer a man when a question is asked. And Catherine said he raised up his hands just like this boy in this thing, in this photograph. He raised up his hands and yelled out loudly, I want God. And the place broke up. They couldn't believe this little five-year-old. And I looked at Catherine for a moment there when she told the story and I said, Holy smokes, the things our children can teach us about faith. I wouldn't do that. They're going to think I'm a nutso. But kids don't care. They share. They step out in faith all the time. Why do you think when the story is told of all the children around Jesus and then the apostles say, okay, now it's time, Jesus, let's get the kids off the children's church. Let's get rid of them. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Suffer the children to stay. 
Because quite frankly, this is the kind of faith that I want you to model. Because kids just get it. They just believe. You know, Jesus says, sit, okay. Stand, okay. Go there, okay. Turn right, okay. They just do it. They have so much to teach us about faith. It's growing up in our faith that messes us up and believe in God for what he says. We got lots to learn from our kids. Second reflection, our last reflection is this. Great faith, like great strength, is most often revealed when it's easily exercised. I mean, the first point, let me just add in Luke 17, verse 5 there. There is an occasion where the apostles, the apostles come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we're listening, we're seeing it, but we have to be honest. We don't have this kind of faith. And what is Jesus' response? Then get lost. I'm fed up with you guys. You haven't got it after three years hanging around with me? Get out of here. That's Jesus' response? No, it's not. He says, then come follow me. Just follow closer with me. Just come. I love you. Let's just walk a little closer. So when you falter, know this. Jesus is not going to cast you adrift. He just wants you to come closer. The last point, great faith like great strength is most often revealed when it's easily exercised. I said earlier that my son, when he was five, I said, Alec, faith is like a muscle. You got to exercise those muscles. And he does. I mean, he's, 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 you know, the guy takes care of himself. You know, uh, uh, when he was in university, I used to text him regularly <coughs> with my devotions, trying to keep my boy in the, in the Word of God while he was in university, the big bad university. And I used to just text him, you know, regularly, and this is what I'm reading. What do you think? And I was telling him about this very passage. We were just, I was in my devotions of the day in Luke 7. I said, imagine us going to the Olympics. And at that time, it was, there was the Olympic, London Olympics. And we go to the London Olympics, and we go to the weightlifting category. Because he was lifting weights at university and doing all that. And we go to the weightlifting um, competition, and it's just these huge individuals with muscles I didn't know human beings could have. Didn't even know they existed. And, and it, it comes down to the last the last three individuals to win gold for their country. And, and it's a huge weight. It's just sitting there on the platform. I'm ima- I can't imagine a human being being able to lift that amount of weight, that, to be strong enough, to have the strength to lift that weight. And the first guy comes up, and he's in with that 1,000-yard, 1,000-meter stare, and he, he, you know, he puts all that powder over, and there's just this cloud of powder, and he gets down there, and he, it's the clean and jerk, and he takes that up to here, but he can't get over his head. The second guy comes up and, you know, powders himself all up and, and, and he gets down and he, he takes that bar and it's just bending like this and he gets it to here, but now he can't get it over his head. He fails. And then the third, the last man standing, is the contestant from Madarasha. And he's huge. I say, Alec, he looks like a tank. He'll lift that thing, no problem. I mean, his legs are like the cedars of Lebanon. When he walks, he doesn't look like he's walking. He looks like he's waddling. He's just got huge thighs, and he's just big everywhere. I mean, his shoulders are the size of watermelons. I mean, so much so that he gets into that thousand-year stare. He's, got, he's lost his neck. There's no more neck. It's just muscle. And he bends into that, that bar, and he's got the bar, and he, he's all into the, into the zone. And he just lifts that bar to here, and the bar just bends, and I'm going... <laughs> Hey, he's going to do it, Alec. And Alec says, wait, wait. 
and he just takes it, and then, maybe he's not, and then he just, he just wills that weight over his head, and then he doesn't have control yet, he's got to have control, he's sort of over here, and then he's sort of over there, but he gets control for a moment, the whistle goes, and he drops the weight, completely, completely spent, there's nothing left to give, it takes his coach and six trainers to get this hulk of a man off of the platform, he's done. And I look at my son, I say, I thought he was stronger than that. And my son repeated back, it took the weight to indicate his real strength. Hmm. Folks, there are going to be times in your life, it may be this week, a crisis, a struggle, a disappointment, a circumstance, a situation that you're going to discover how strong your faith is. As I mentioned earlier, the New Testament is strewn with names. Paul even writes their names of the people who walked away from faith. Because in that moment, and of difficulty, they didn't have the commensurate faith to walk through it well. Storms come. How are you going to do what you're doing now today to strengthen that muscle called faith will dictate how successful you will be in the future when the storms inevitably come. Dallas Willard, probably one of the greatest uh, devotional writers of uh, the late 20th century, he's with the Lord now, he said something like this. I can't quote him, but it's something like this. He said, when we talk about our struggle with faith, because oftentimes when we as believers talk about faith, we talk about our struggle with faith. Because we do struggle right? I mean, even the apostles admitted that to Jesus in Luke 17, verse 5. When we, he said, when we talk about our struggle with faith, we're actually talking about acting as if we have faith when we do not. Ouch, that's sobering. Ouch, that's nasty. My lack of faith is actually an indication that I don't have the faith, and I need to do something about it. Jesus says, just come follow me. He says it to the apostles. He says it to each and every one. Just come follow me and know this faith because you need to realize as a believer every single day of your life you get to choose how much God chooses to bless you. Amen? Father, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, this one really sort of points a finger at us. It's not pleasant. But I thank you, Father, for the challenge. We long, Father, to be individuals who once in a while, as your children, occasionally amaze you. Help us, Father, in our unbelief. Help us, Father, to have a faith like an unlikely character like this Roman soldier. And, Father, I pray we might grow in our faith in 2022 as individuals, but also corporately as a church family as we believe great things for reaching out into Hamilton. Give us the faith necessary to believe you for great blessing in the future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, everyone.